ladies and gentlemen, this is Rashkin Report. Believe it or not, uh, this is Yuri Rashkin, and I'm being joined today by two Russian writers, Russian-American <laughs> writers, some perhaps even more American writers than, than Russian writers. And uh, one of them is uh, Slava Malamud. Slava, welcome to the program. Hello. And another one is Mikhail Iosil. Now, Mikhail is, as far as I can tell from our prior communications, is no huge sports fan. But Slava is a professional sports writer, as I understand. And I have an important point to make here, I feel, and that is that Green Bay Packers are going to do very well um, this Saturday. So welcome to the program. And uh, how seriously are you willing to defend Tom Brady is what I would like to know. Oh, gosh, no, please, please get rid of the beast for us. We are, uh, if you can slay the beast, uh, we, we will be extremely, extremely grateful. Because, you know, I feel that we have, as, as a society, have shifted too far away from our priorities. Um, and, which and is defeating Tom Brady. I, I, which is defeating Tom Brady. That's right. Best of all times, whatever. Uh, I think Aaron Rodgers is uh, outstanding. And there are other great quarterbacks and just players. I mean, so what the Tom Brady is like practically our age, you know, and still playing. Uh, Right. He was born during the early days of the Gerald Ford administration. That just that's, destroys me to even say that. Right. And we're not even talking about a car. Yeah. You know, I, I think this is important to note. So, so I feel that, yeah, Mikhail, would you like to comment on all of this madness? No, no, but actually, well, I used to be a fairly huge sports fan back in the Soviet Union. I may be the only one of the three of us who actually... Uh, remembers watching live the summit series of 1973 in a village 200 kilometers northwest of Leningrad. Great. But I am the only one who is five minute walk away from the mo former Montreal Forum, which is where it was. Now it's Alexis Nihon uh, uh, shopping mall but uh, and movie theater. But uh, that's where Montreal Forum was. And uh, it was not live because it was with one day delay, obviously, in, in but I remember at two in the morning, group of the 20 of us uh, freshmen at Leningrad Shipbuilding Institute found the only um, cabin in the village with a TV. And uh, we bought a, like a like fairly substantial barrel of uh, local beer to the old woman who lived there. And the 20 of us were there at two or three in the morning. And we were like, well, it's a so, so whole separate uh, thing, but uh, just wanted to somehow just develop the sports team but we, we don't need to so no 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 i think it's great i mean you are you know and i think it's important to point out as if nobody somebody didn't notice mikhail is an amazing storyteller and i think that that's part of what makes him such a great writer anyway um i wonder if we've been paying too much attention to politics do we need to shift our attention to something else? I mean, for Russian vloggers, it could be speaking about like crypto dollars and, you know, those kinds of things, whatever. But have we been paying too much attention to politics, Slava? I, first of all, I don't think it necessarily has to be one or the other. It's not a dichotomy. It's not a, uh, a pick one. Uh, I always cringe when people say that sports and politics should be separate and, you know, keep your politics away from my sports. I watch, I watch games to escape from it all. 
sports and politics have never been separate as long as sports have existed. Uh, chariot racing in, uh, in, in ancient Rome and it was a highly political event. Uh, Olymp ancient Olympic Games were extremely political. Uh, modern Olympic Games have always been political, always been very nationalist. Uh, it's it, they never exist separately. And guess what? Today, I, I, in the morning, uh, Colin Kaepernick was trending on Twitter, and sure as heck wasn't because of a number of touchdowns passes he threw. It was because of the fact that people are coming to realize now in 2021 that what this man did was important, and he was horribly mistreated. And uh, um, the outgoing president of the United States, unfortunately, made a spectacle around him by energizing um, very racist segments of American society, um, and which resulted in him being blacklisted in the 21st century. We had a black man being being prohibited from doing his doing his job, from working. Uh, working do you, do you think them. that, uh, in your opinion, is uh, Colin Kaepernick still able of being a quarterback, by the way, or do you feel that his career has effectively been ended? I'm sure, I'm sure, Sec, uh, certain he is a better quarterback than a lot of people currently playing in the NFL. And I think he is a better quarterback than Mitch Trubisky. I think you'll agree with me on that, being a Packers fan. Well, you know, but th th then you have uh, so many great ones. And that's what we want to focus on is greatness. Uh, but we don't have a team that is rooted for by Republicans and then a team that is rooted for by Democrats when it comes to sports. We don't have those kinds of divisions. That's true. I mean, it's, it's all, it's all uh, mostly um, uh, geographical. And I, I'm, a, as, as a, I'm a Democrat, but as a fan of uh, the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres, I know I'm pretty certain that the owners of those two teams are most likely both Republicans. Most owners do. Uh, it's uh, and one thing that I always hope for is that my favorite athletes are just just shut up about politics and don't talk about it because I know they're probably going. Especially if they're white, I know they're probably going to be on the opposite side of the spectrum from me. But hey, it is their right. They do what they have to do, and. Uh, uh, I just hope that um, in, in the case with Kaepernick, he was not even being uh, partisan. He was just trying to protest against injustice and uh, he suffered for it. And uh, the, uh, the owners basically made it very political. They said they did not want to upset the president and they did not want to upset his base. Uh, whereas a lot of fans were just saying, okay, keep politics away from my sports. But, you know, it's just you wanting to stay in your comfort zone. It's not because that's the objective reality. Sports are a part of politics. They always will be, always have been. Mikhail, let me ask you this. Uh, from your perspective, uh, do you feel that you have been paying as much attention to politics until Donald Trump showed up? And are you planning on paying as much attention to politics after he leaves? Well, it's not a matter of who wants deciding to do something like this. It's... Uh... It's just the proportion that different components of one's life somehow come into play. Um, it's almost, it happens sort of like um, almost against our will or, or uh, we don't decide necessarily what it is that we're interested in and, 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 and how much to what extent at different points in our lives. Um, I, I would remind you, it's just, just continuing the sports theme for a moment that of course in the Soviet Union sports was obviously highly politicized, right? And I will just bring to it just recently, the other day I was discussing um, the, the two world championship 
carp of Kachnoi and carp of Kaspara, for instance, right? And 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 so on. And so um, I just think that it's a matter of uh, of uh, you know we are in this COVID period, right? And uh, um, uh, and one of the symptoms is that people lose a sense of smell or taste. And some people basically have a highly, you know, keen sense of smell and taste. And it just is a matter of uh, how you perceive reality, whether you sense that smell, whether you taste this reality. And uh, um, uh, we don't decide. And, and the way that, that, that people fell for Trump, for instance, or the way people immediately loathed him, uh, it was not a, some kind of pro pro process of some kind of cognition. It just happened. It's just, uh, it's just, and, and sometimes people were completely unaware, unaware that they would fall for him and that they would, or that they would resent him quite so much. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting topic, obviously, but it's not something that can be easily kind of lends itself. Well, to if we're doing this like a sports show, then everything is going to get wrapped up by the time we go to the commercial. Uh, Slava, let <laughs> is me it, ask is you. Is it a sports show, Yuri? You didn't tell me it was a sports show. Well, this is, you know, it was a last minute thought, but I just, you know, I, I was thinking about my guests and I thought, you know, there's a point to be made. Slava, go ahead. About politics? And sports and value oh, of uh, team, the team loyalty. No matter how bad or good my team is, it's my team. You know, that is a great point. And I was, uh, I got to tell you, I was pretty apolitical until uh, my early 30s. I, uh, uh when I came to this country in 1992, in 1991, actually late 91 as a refugee from uh, one of the troublesome regions of the former Soviet Union, I was, uh, uh, I was kind of susceptible to the entire discourse prevalent among the Russian American diaspora, which tends to lean extremely hard to the right, and much more to the right now than it was back then. But even then, pretty much 95%, I would say of all Russian Americans were like Reagan Republicans. Uh, but I was not feeling very passionate about it. What, uh, what turned me into politics was the George W. Bush presidency and uh, his outward religiosity turned me off real bad, big time. And uh, of course, the post 9-11 ultra patriotism, you're with us or against us, you either support the president or you're the enemy of this country. That reminded me so much of the Soviet Union that turned me away from the Republican uh, side of the, of the aisle and I became more or less a Democrat. And then that kind of got exacerbated by the subsequent years. Uh, but I have to tell you, I, I missed the times where I could merely disagree with Republicans. I could merely dislike all that they stand for and not be afraid and not be revolted and not be, uh, not, not be worried about the future of, of this country as a, as a representative democracy. Uh, and those last four years that these have been my, uh, my emotions and I really don't, uh, don't enjoy that. I wanna go back to the time when, where Republicans are simply people I disagree with and not people who pose an existential threat. Uh, but I feel that you made a great point about this being a team sport now, politics. Uh, a lot of people just don't care who represents them, who wears red or blue. Uh, they are just going to vote for them because they're on my team and uh, they want their team to win because they want to feel good and they want the other, the, the other guys to feel miserable. And I think for Trump, besides racism and besides xenophobia and besides all these anxieties of, uh, of the, uh, about the changing um, uh, 
the demographics of the nation and changing political landscape and a change in vocabulary uh, and then, you know, the political correctness and everything else. One biggest prevalent emotion that I think people felt voting for him is that he makes me feel good about being a white man and he makes people whom I dislike feel bad. That I'm, people who voted for him, I believe from conversations with, uh, with some of them, really love them because he made people that they hate furious, people like me furious. And that is a very sports fan emotion. You know, this we, is also we, a punchline to a Russian joke where a uh, man's desire is to not to have all these wealth and beautiful women, but to have his neighbor's cow die. Yeah. Uh, okay. Mikhail, uh, you, you know, you, you live in uh, Canada. You're, although you're writing, you know, you're writing in New Yorker and other fine publications. Um, do you feel like you're living a floor above a meth lab? Well, uh, we live an hour away from the border, and there are uh, pro-Trump people here, and there are pro-Trump people. Trump is an existential, it, it, it is a really good point. Up until recently, up until Trump came along, basically, it was entirely possible to have political disagreements, and yet it didn't necessarily lead to disintegration of friendships or families and so forth. And it was not, it was not such a... Like, powerful existential thing and but he plugged in into something basically um, um, much more insidious and 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 uh, and profound than just mere political disagreements existential disagreements basically he found is uncommon like uh, you know walking vehicle of uh, of other people's shamelessness and um, and uh, uh, I noticed similar thing when I was started doing my literary seminars in St Petersburg and late 90s and early 2000s, I could almost pinpoint the moment when some of old friends of mine in Russia started feeling the, the effects of this poison that Putin was basically injecting in the Russian existential vein. And it happened around 99, 2000. Suddenly, old, completely political college friends of mine, former friends of mine and so forth, they just start saying, why do Americans think they're superior to us? And all those kinds of things. Suddenly, something's changed in the, in the, in the atmosphere. And it was like that with uh, Trump, because Trump is not about politics. He's not, obviously, he's not a Democrat. He's not a Republican, necessarily. If anything, he's a proto-fascist. But that doesn't begin to describe him either. He's just basically a walking amalgamation of, of, uh, of, of a redeemable feature. Basically, he just came along and told people, that uh, there is no shame, or if you have shame, I'll take it up on myself. I'd be your vessel for, uh, for shamelessness. And obviously, you know, uh, in our case, you know, we, we, we deal with uh, fellow emigres and so forth. It, it landed powerfully with them, obviously, because basically they were looking for someone to look down on. And he told them that uh, it's entirely legitimate and entirely beyond uh, scope of shame to uh, to look down on people, to to be racist and so forth. Mikhail, I wonder, have you ever been banned from Facebook? Not really, no. No, and and I it makes sense to me because you use such vocabulary, such rich vocabulary, that I think it just overwhelms the algorithm. It's not used to dealing with that. Like, do I place that? Was this an insult or was this an observation? Where is the fine line? You make it very complicated. But thank you, Slava. Your response. I I agree. Yeah, I think. Uh... Uh, when it comes to Trump, uh, his 
overwhelming overwhelmingly his political um, his uh, his his political beliefs basically are whatever makes me better whatever makes trump uh, great and whatever makes uh, all those people that he wants to be respected by respect him his i think i believe his entire uh, reason for him even getting into politics was first of all to work on his own insecurities because he was not really uh, taken seriously by the Manhattan elites that he always wanted to rub elbows with. And secondly, he was infuriated by the fact that somebody like Barack Obama got elected president because in his mind, uh, people who look like Barack Obama, who have a name like Barack Obama, should never be president. They should only serve him cocktails. And he was shaken to the core by the fact of Obama's presidency. And that's that's why he- Shaken, not stirred. Go ahead. <laughs> exactly. And uh, uh, in as much as he has any political beliefs from what I've been able to discern over the last four years, it's uh, 17th century mercantilism and uh, xenophobia. There's nothing else there. There's nothing else that he passionately believes in. He believes that America is being ripped off by other countries on trade. And he believes that only people who look a certain way and sound a certain way and, and uh, vote a certain way should be called Americans. Everybody else should not. Uh, and that is, these are two very powerful emotions that he was able, well, yeah, I mean, basically two powerful emotions he was able to tap into, uh, especially with the, with the core of his voting block. It's that second one, the xenophobia and the exclusiveness. As one Trump voter once told me, uh, he is the first politician I've ever encountered who makes me feel better better to be a white man. And uh, to me, that basically explains everything. It explains why 70 million people voted for him. Um, it's, uh, when, it's, it's, a res it's resentment of a formerly privileged majority who feels like they're losing their privilege. All right. Well, <clears throat> how can we wrap this up before we go to a commercial break, also known as uh, begin our stream in Russian for part of the audience that speaks either or both languages you should watch both remember to subscribe to rashkin report sometimes we even do programs in english here this is uh why not right um so back to the question of brand loyalty and team loyalty uh packers have had plenty of seasons that did not go very well and people didn't give up on packers people felt that you know the, the true believers not bandwagon fans but true believers support their brand but it doesn't mean that the people don't want a better general manager and people don't want a better quarterback and people don't want a better receivers in every other position and a better stadium all of those things can coexist within the brand loyalty so i'm wondering if it is possible for republican party to recover the brand to save the brand and just fill it with with better people um Either one of you, fine gentlemen, uh, whoever wishes to take a stab at this one first slash last. Well, lots of people have taken a stab at it over the last weeks and months. And uh, uh, most people have, lots of people have read Timothy Snyder's piece in the New York Times magazine, right? About uh, the party breaking up into gamers and, and, and breakers, right? And the people who want to game the system and the people who basically want to completely break everything up. And that was the initial Trump appeal, shake things up, break things up, and just basically dismantle the system. And, uh, you know, we're not going to discover anything new here if we say that the Republican Party is kind of breaking up in two in front of our eyes right now, right? So uh, it's an interesting process to, if there is any, well, if there is any 
silver lining to Trump presidency. Of course, it's a powerful cautionary tale and hopefully an inoculation of some sorts. A and B it probably would lead to the downfall of the completely cynical uh, and absolutely apatriotic at this point to Republican Party, the way it just, uh, basically presents itself now. So that's probably, I don't know. I think that Trump is gonna become radioactive and people who support him become radioactive in many ways, at least from, you know, from business and marketing perspective, for sure. And uh, Republican party, yeah, I don't know how it's gonna reconstruct itself. It's been, it's been exposed as an, basically as an unpatriotic party, undemocratic party. So they cheated, all right, okay. Yeah. Slava, what about, you know, can, can this brand recover without reinflating its balls? Well, uh, Tom Brady again, Tom Brady references. Awesome, love it. Well, first of all, cry me a river with your Packers. I mean, you guys have won two Super Bowls in my lifetime. And uh, I'm a you. Buffalo Bills fan. So recovering the brand is not an issue for us. It's, you know, Finding any sort of solace. That's that's true for Buffalo. Yeah. Yes, that's anything, true. anything ever. I mean, one, one before we die. That's how we thought. That's how we phrase it. But to me, I, the Republican Party as a brand has always been this Frankenstein monster, at least since the '80s, that was cobbled together from interests of com several completely different blocks. You have the uh, you have the donors block. You know, the millionaires. They don't care about abortion they don't care about religion they don't care about guns necessarily unless they're in the gun industry uh, they don't care about immigrants unless uh, it's you know it's a source of cheap labor they actually very much pro-immigration they care about less environmental regulation less uh, safety regulation less uh, money they have to spend on making their workers feel comfortable and uh, more tax breaks for themselves that that policy, that sort of a uh, Reaganomics, uh, Thatcherite policy, that's one thing. And then you have another block, which is uh, evangelicals, which are people who want to push through um, uh, push through radical social reforms, uh, right wing social reforms, banning abortion, may putting you know making a prayer mandatory in public schools, whatever. And then you have. Uh, the Southern strategy, which was created by Lee Atwater back in the 70s, um, which is energizing the racial resentments of the white working class, and particularly it, at that time it was in the South, now it's spread into, the, in, into your neck of the woods as well. This is why Wisconsin probably went Republican, because the white working class in the North is also feeling, feeling racial resentments as well. So you have these three voting blocks who have three different- In 2020, we did go for Biden. That, that's pretty clear, that's but go ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, 2020 might wind up being Wisconsin's year in more ways than one. But uh, this is three different sets of priorities. Uh, and they're now tugging in different directions, ripping their Republican Party apart. The traditional Republicans, the never Trump Republicans, uh, don't want anything to do with the other two voting blocks. They don't care about the Jesus voters. They don't care about the uh, racist voters. They just, you know, they want conservative uh, economic fiscal policies. But then there is also a whole, a whole lot of these Reagan Republicans who are willing to swallow a whole lot of feces in order to get, they're, they're willing to go along with Trump as long as he delivers on their priorities. And then there's a whole bunch of uh, uh, evangelicals who are willing to completely close their eyes on everything that Trump stands for his entire life, the way he lies, the way he cheats, 
the way he uh, he's obscene and the way he promotes violence, as long as he delivers them, their judges are going to ban abortion. So I don't see how these three blocks can coexist eventually. I mean, at, at some point, it's going to uh, it's going to be a realignment. The Republican Party is going to either break up into other parties like the Whigs in the 19th century that couldn't reconcile over a, over a question of slavery. Maybe Trump will become this new uh, this new inflection point after which the Republican Party is going to have to decide which direction am I going to go or whether these you know, Reagan Republicans are um, can exist in the same party with the, uh, with, with the Trumpers. And uh, I would love nothing more than to have a party like the German CDU, for example, uh, the German Christian Democrats, or even the Tories in Great Britain. You know, a, a modern, sane, conservative party who uh, might not agree with me on fiscal policies and might not want to bring about any of Bernie Sanders' priorities or, <laughs> or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez priorities, but is at least not actively insane. Uh, I'm afraid this is not the direction we're going to see the Republican Party head in the 2020s. Well, and you know, if you have a situation with a bad team owner who just can't get the right people and is not interested in things like winning, uh, then um, okay. So, you know, I remember LA Clippers for many years, it was just a toy for, for their owner. And, um, you know, because at some point you can't win elections this way. Uh, because the population is really not supporting this ideology and this approach. Now, uh, we're going to go into extra time for obvious reasons. There's no way that we could simulate this conversation in any meaningful form in Russian in about 10 minutes that we have, or maybe a little bit more. So let's just continue this uh, conversation in English in the meantime. Mikhail, do you feel that Republicans and Democrats can learn anything from looking at Russia? Uh, where uh, Mr. Navalny was uh, bravely decided to enter Russian history by um, uh, returning after being clearly poisoned and revealing in a video who his poisoners were and, and finger points clearly at Kremlin and her evil motives. I'm tired of, of calling them him. It's just the uh, Russians are so strong into pronouns and, and power. Let's go with her. Kremlin, it could be a she. So... Isn't there anything that Republicans and Democrats in the United States learn uh, from looking at in East? Well, um, well, I don't know. Republicans, I mean, the Americans are not looking at Russia in order to learn a lesson. They're not looking at Russia at all, generally. And, uh, it and, would and be yet Russians consider themselves, I mean, Chadayev, famous thinker, said that Russia is created to be a bad example. Yeah, it's the underbelly this, this, this of, of the Western psyche in some ways. But, uh, um, but, this, uh, but uh, um, I think it's an interesting moment in that, um, of course, for the last four years, we had in the White House basically Putin toady, uh, somebody who powerfully depended on him psychologically and financially probably and uh, emotionally and in many other ways. And so um, it would be interesting to see how how, how Russia, how Putin is going to deal with a united front. He may be completely beyond the point of no return mentally at this point and decided that basically that his reputation cannot be salvaged anymore. So there is nothing to, uh, to try to, to, to hold on to. And so in that sense, he can do with Navalny whatever he wants. And Navalny, basically it's an ancient like Russian tradition. He's sacrificing himself in a way to defeat the system that is going to devour him. 
probably. But um, this, this is almost like a we, Matrix kind of a ending. It is where, where he it, where it, he it, blends with the system to take uh, take it over. It's sort of like an incomprehensible level of uh, of, uh, of of bravery somehow, it, recklessness, whatever. But it's it's bravery, and people have a difficult time adjusting to this level of bravery, and therefore you can see in Russian no sphere in the Russian Facebook or in Russian social uh, media, you can see the immediate proliferation of anti-Navalny, you know, just people suddenly feel the need to to announce that they've always been against him and that they wouldn't want to see him as president of Russia as though that's actually is what's on offer right now, but, uh, and so forth. And they, they, um, I think people just cannot deal with, the, with this, um, with this incomprehensible level of personal uh, sacrifice, uh, and it just somehow contrasts too powerfully with the, what they feel about themselves, consciously or subconsciously. Uh, so I don't know. I think I think it's 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 it it really is an ancient heroic tale what we are seeing in Russia now with Navalny. Just uh, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I I know that. That uh, that Putin is going to face now a united front of the West, and uh, and he's going to face powerful new sanctions, uh, and uh, and 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 his cronies from his inner circle are going to be sanctioned even more stringently than before. And I don't know if it makes any difference to him because he may, like I said, be beyond the point of no return psychologically, mentally. He may be deranged to that extent that the sense of that he's been humiliated and he's been humiliated enormously by Navalny. He tried to kill him and, and failed. And now Navalny basically showing him up by showing back in Russia and what's like almost taunting him. You want to finish me off? He could. And yet probably he still, he couldn't. Mm, don't know. Don't know. But what we're seeing, of course, now in Russia, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a heroic tale in some ways. It's, it's fascinating to watch. And it's, it's going to be kind of interesting to see how Putin is going to deal with the West that's united against him. And probably, yeah, I don't know. Slava, let me throw this uh, to you. You know, when you have one league that is attempting to play by the rules and another league where they just like whack each other, uh, then um, is there a lesson there perhaps? Yeah, I think so. I, I think the biggest lesson that uh, America can uh, learn from Russia is if you look at the 20 years of Putin's rule, and, and I agree with Mikhail because I've also found a, uh, an inflection point, a point where I just stopped understanding most of my former compatriots and colleagues I worked with in the Russian media. That happened in 2014 after Russia annexed Crimea. But if you look at, at the 20 years of, of Putin's rule, Putin's greatest achievement PR-wise was not to make Russians believe into some new ideology, some new fancy ideology, whether it be communism or orthodoxy or anything else, anything they would hold sacred now. It was to convince them that there is no such thing as the truth. There is no such thing as facts, that everybody has their own facts. Everybody has their own truth. Nobody is better and nobody is worse. Everybody is looking out for their own interests. And we just might as well vote for a guy who, yeah, he enriches himself and he lies, but who doesn't? At least he's making us great again. And that is what happened in America in the last four years. You had, you had a creation of alternative reality, alternative facts, people not believing the media, not believing in science anymore not believing any type of authority or expertise, 
people just going with their gut and voting for somebody who makes them feel better because he's promising to make them great again. And in their minds, being great again means being greater than people they don't like. And that is the same type of mentality that keeps Putin in power. And that's the same type of mentality that brought Trump into power and almost very, very nearly kept him in power for four more years, which would have been disastrous, I believe, for Western democracy. That is, to me, that's the biggest reason. Uh, that's the biggest lesson you could learn from Russia. You could look at Russia, look at Russian media right now, look at uh, how Russians talk about politics, how Russian young people who have known nobody but Putin, 20-somethings, how they talk about politics and what they hold dear and what truths they hold to be self-evident. And you can see a pretty terrifying picture of what might happen in America, at least with a very substantial segment of the voting public over the next 10 years. And that, that is a sobering thought. All right. I will remind listeners that you're watching and viewing Rashkin Report. I'm your host, Yuri Rashkin. And my guests today are a sports writer and a teacher in Maryland, Slava Malamut, and a writer and a professor at Concordia University in Montreal, Mikhail Iosil. Um, and as we are looking at wrapping up this conversation, um, Mikhail, I'm curious as, as you see this um, process, um, you're thinking that you're in the right place right now being in Montreal and and being a little away or um, or do you feel connected and let me actually let me take that back Russian community is extremely right-wing as a whole um, it seems to me that almost in order for Russian culture to continue to be represented in a positive way it needs to shift into English and, and uh, when we have, uh, when we talk about these super conservative Russians, they also are speaking Russian because it seems to me that a way for a person, a progressive mindset of Russian background to continue to live in a community is to shift into English. And, and that's where progressive thoughts and perhaps future lives. Is, is there a language culture barrier that, that you can sense because you know you're obviously a very successful writer in English, uh, as as is in Russian. So you see both sides. Um, well, you write in the sense that well, this remove um, is uh, uh, is illusory, of course. But uh, uh, that I'm at, I'm, uh, but but uh, because we're now all the netizens, we are all in existent in in, in in cyberspace, and we are connected that way with the people. I, I frankly, you know, all the friends I have uh, uh, share my political views, and uh, um, and um, I think that the, the majority of every every first generation of Eastern European immigrants and generally immigrants to the new world, imagine people coming into the new world, they are completely overwhelmed by the cacophony of the new world, they are, everything is unfamiliar, they don't know the language well, they, everything, they come from monochromatic world and it's this explosion of color and, and just the sheer, the sheer massive emotional and psychological overload that causes them immediately to start looking for somebody who offers them much simpler, the simpler picture of the world, basically, the more monochromatic, the more clear cut picture. That's Republicans usually. 
that's and and whoever is the easiest explainer will will get them and so that's 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 nothing new that's that's absolutely natural it's un unfortunate that people who basically no matter how long ago they may have left the soviet union let's say or post soviet russia they uh, decades ago they still hadn't fully arrived in the United States and America because basically they don't know. They're the still country. wandering in the desert. All right. Well, they, they, they've sort of like, it's, it's you know, it's the, the, the sort of like the very uh, sort of self-isolating Chinatown of their mind, you know, somehow. It's just a very uh, hermetic existence. And uh, and that's unfortunate in a way. And that's how they perceive America. They image, the America of their imaginings, the real America, is not the one that, that actually exists. So from that standpoint, they can be pitied. And it's kind of sad in many ways, except that it's also very noxious. But like I said, uh, you know, the, 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 the sphere of my friends, for instance, uh, are people who share my beliefs and my, and it kind of feels natural. Um, I don't know, their children already will be different. It's the fate of every first generation uh, wave of immigrants to be very conservative or right. to the right of Attila the Khan. So. Right. Um, Slava, let me throw it back at you as, and, and we will wrap this up at this point after your answer, because um, do you feel that there's a, a way for um, progressive uh, liberal writing in Russian, or is that such a small niche audience that you might as well just, if you're going to be progressive, you might as well do it in English? You know, that's a wonderful question because just last night I was having dinner with uh, in, in in Washington with um, Julia Yoffe, the brilliant uh, Russian American journalist, and uh, we ha and she told me because she spent much more time. In I Boston. want her contact information, but just <laughs> go ahead. She's very busy writing her book right now. She's terrible at answering her, <laughs> her personal messages, but yeah, we are. And she was talking about a liberal Moscow youth, the young people in, in, in Russia right now, they're mostly in Moscow, who are very much plugged in into the liberal discourse, into the modern, you know, socially liberal discourse in, in, in the West. And she said that they almost never use any translated Russian terms uh, for the things they care about. Like, uh, they use things, and I see if our English-speaking audience can pick up on what I'm talking, what I'm talking about. They use things like "toxicny masculism" or "zacheky tvoju privilegiu," or or things like "cisgenderny mushina" and things like that. Uh, so they use the uh, they use these English words, uh, not even translated, and. Uh, that see, that serves as a cultural marker of a person with a certain point of view, uh, and uh, they they kind of this is how they identify each other that they are not your traditional Russian uh, patriarchal, arch conservative, arch right wing right wing imperial type of thinkers. Uh, they feel like uh, their beliefs and what they hold dear can only be properly expressed in English. I, as a writer, as a former uh, sports writer in Russia, I always felt the need to translate any, any terms, sports terms in particular, that uh, I felt were clunky and not friendly to the Russian language, and either make up my own or explain them somehow or, or simply, you know, find the best translation I could. Uh, but today's youth obviously doesn't feel that way. They feel like Russian language no longer addresses their needs. 
and that might that, so it might be a good point it might be the fact that uh just like in the area of uh, high high tech we have borrowed a lot of english because we didn't feel like russian was well suited for uh for translating information for relaying information in a very concise way english is a very good language in relaying technical information and relaying just to be fair that could also be due to the fact that there is no iron curtain because north koreans have much better quality of language than south koreans because they have no communication with anybody else that's right that's very much clear, cleaner language i always felt that russian was a much better language to, re to relay emotions we're more poetic where uh, we can say things, we can, we can utter a sentence that will carry almost zero information, but will exactly let you know, know how, how we feel. Whereas English, uh, there, is a, there is a sign uh, about in the Sheremetyevo I like Air you, enough. Uh, there's, a, there's a sign in Sheremetyevo Airport that says, для входа с багажом, не подлежащим заполнению таможенной декларации. And then the English translation, nothing to declare. So it takes us 15 words <laughs> to say something that the, in English can be relayed in three syllables. And uh, I think that maybe, maybe that's why, maybe liberalism is the same way. It doesn't translate into Russian very well, but it's just because our culture is just lagging behind in that, in that respect in many ways. That's true. I mean, we're still very patriarchal and we're still stuck in the 19th century in, very many, in a lot of aspects, which is unfortunate. But if Russians are known for anything, we're known for overcoming extremely severe odds. Well, and on that note, I would like to thank my wonderful guests today, Mikhail Yosil and Slava Malamud. Uh, Mikhail joined us from uh, Toronto. Uh, I'm sorry, Montreal, wrong city. And uh, Slava joined us. I don't know, you're, you're in Baltimore, am I correct? Yes. Baltimore, all right. And uh, I am myself obviously in Wisconsin <laughs> and go Packers. Thank you for watching. Remember to subscribe, support your favorite team. And until we meet again, take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.